Well, good morning. It's so good to be with all of you guys again this morning. And uh, if you weren't here with us last evening, uh, let me just briefly review and just kind of catch us up to speed so we're all kind of on the same page. Uh, last night, what we tried to do in that first session was really orient ourselves and orient our gaze to understanding uh, what depression is, what does it look like, uh, what is the experience of it for people who struggle with it. And I hope that you all made the connection last night in that first session that understanding ultimately, hopefully, biblically has a goal. It's not just understanding so that we accumulate more information or that we leave here a little bit smarter or more intelligent, but that, that understanding actually leads to compassion. That when we understand depression, when we understand the, the essential human experience of what that looks like, it actually moves us towards others. It moves us uh, into the lives of others. So the goal is not, hey, no more information, but the goal really is transformation. The goal is that with this knowledge and with this information that we grow in how we help other people. In the second session, what we did is we tried to move a little bit deeper and we said, does, does Scripture speak into this struggle of depression? Does it, does it talk about it? Does it highlight some of those characteristics? And not only does it highlight some of these characteristics, but is there a richness of how Scripture talks about these things, harmonizes some of the different reasons and some of the causes of why people struggle? Does, does Scripture actually speak to that? Uh, experience, and I think we saw uh, in really rich ways, both in the Psalms and then also in the lives of other people, uh, and then also in some of those principles that we covered in the end, that it does, that Scripture does speak robustly and deeply uh, to this issue of human depression. So today, to kind of set a little bit of what we're going to be talking about today in this session this morning, we're going to be talking about what does it look like to come alongside the hurting and those who are struggling with depression. And we'll seek to kind of divide our time up into halves in this session. First half, uh, for those of you who are helpers, those of you who are coming alongside, maybe a child, a spouse, a loved one, a neighbor. And then in the latter half, we'll talk more from the perspective of those of you who are here this morning who might be struggling. Right, and I know that uh, on both sides of that, all of us will be able to be helped. If you have your Bibles this morning, just turn over with me to Psalm 121, just as we open our gaze and we want to open with Scripture and open with God's Word. In Psalm 121, uh, Song of Ascents, verse 1, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This, uh, this image that we see here in Psalm 121 of the Lord being our helper and our keeper, I think is uh, such a meaningful and such an intimate metaphor for how the Lord draws near to us in our troubles. Uh, in, verse, uh, in verse five where it says, the Lord is your keeper and the Lord is the shade at your right hand. Right? I tell people all the time, in order to provide shade for someone, in order to stand in someone's shadow, you, you have to be near them, right? You can't be far off. You can't be miles down the road and cast a shadow and then allow somebody to come up underneath your shadow. In order to find shade and near someone or to find shade and protection, what has to happen? There has to be nearness. There has to be closeness. And what a beautiful metaphor for us to understand the nearness of the Lord that he draws near to us as a helper and as a keeper. And the encouragement then for all of us that helps us then transition into what we'll talk about this morning is what a beautiful opportunity then for ministry that the Lord would choose people like you and I to come in and to incarnate and to embody one of the premier ways that he draws near to us, that we help other people. In Genesis where God's creating Adam and Eve, he creates Eve as a helper. And a lot of times we think of helper as being less than, right? Like a, an attendant or a domestic servant. But what we realize that 16 out of the 19 times in Genesis where that word helper is used, you know who it refers to? It refers to God himself. But one of the essential and one of the premier ways that God wants to be known by us is this, is that God is our helper. He is a helper in times of trouble. And so for all of us this morning, right, who are seeking to help, 
who are seeking to caregive, right? There are probably going to be times where it can feel very lonely, it can feel very isolating, it can feel like you were way in over your head. And when there are moments like that, what I try to remind myself in is this is also an opportunity to bring the love of Christ, to bring the help that comes from the Lord, and to bring it in human flesh, to incarnate it to those uh, who really need it. So that's, that's what we'll dive into here in this first half, is talking about what are things that we can do as helpers, as caregivers. And I want you to think of some of these things that we're going to talk about today, friends, not as boxes to check but habits to practice. They're not boxes to check, right? When we go through some of these things, they're not like, okay, so I do this, and then I say this, and then I do this. These are not boxes to be checked, but these are practices that I want you to inhabit. They are, uh, they're, they're clothing, right? Paul might say, clothe yourselves. These are things I would want you to clothe yourselves with as you get up each and every morning and you say, how do I move towards other people? And so when we're thinking about all of these items, don't view them as linear things of, okay, do this and do this, but view them as things that with the Lord's help, we seek to practice and embody to those that we care for. Here's one of the things that, uh, one of the habits we have to cultivate, and it's this, that uh, as we help, we want to make sure that we are avoiding simplistic solutions. We want to avoid simplistic solutions. Uh, oftentimes, as we've already seen earlier, depression is a complex problem, right? There could be a myriad of different causes. There could be a myriad of different things that are affecting a person's uh, sense of who they are, their physical well-being. And so when we move in with simplicity, answers to complex problems, it can feel very dismissive. It can feel very reductionistic. And so what we're not wanting to do when we are moving towards other people is offering simplistic explanations, right? Uh, a way that I describe simplistic solutions is this, is we try to explain as much as is possible with this person with as little information as we have available to us. So we try to explain as much as is possible that's going wrong with this person with as little information uh, that's available to us, right? When we think about this, uh, probably some people might come to mind, but uh, what comes to my mind are Job's friends, right? Job's three friends who travel afar, they come and visit him, they sit, they actually do well with him by sitting with him in silence for seven weeks, but essentially their counsel to him is quite what? It's quite simplistic. It's very monocausal, we might say. The, the reason why they ultimately say Job is going through what he's going through is because he's done something bad. He has sinned against God and God is punishing him. So as helpers and as caregivers, we want to avoid those simplistic solutions. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that there's also a simplicity, though, oftentimes to how we care and to how we help. Some of the things that you'll hear us talk about, that you'll hear me talk about this morning, are they're not going to be rocket science, right? They're not going to be these, uh, these, these uh, magical wands that we wave, but they might just be simple things like listening, asking questions, moving towards other people. And so there's a difference between offering simplistic solutions, but then also the simplicity of just coming near people and helping them where they're at. J.I. Packer describes this complexity well in his book, Spiritual Depression. Uh, J.I. Packer says this, not Packer, not Spiritual Depression in another book that he wrote on this. He says, Christians live in and through their bodies, bodies that from time to time malfunction, they get sick and they wear out, and they finally die. And physical factors with or without spiritual slippages can at any stage bring on depression in its various forms. Some in the past have gone so far as to diagnose depression in Christians as always a sign of unbelief or some other major sin, but this is not right. Right? And again, as we talked about last night, it's never going to be just this one cause or this one factor, but more likely than not a variety of factors and causes that inside and that serve as a context for people to struggle with depression. That moves us then to our second item of just learning what not to say. Learning what not to say. Ed Welch has given us a, a variety of different things, and I'll just say at the beginning, if you have ever said any of these things, you are not alone. I have said these things, so I don't want you to beat yourself up. I'm not saying any of these things, and Ed is not saying any of these things to make you feel bad about yourself. But things like, you know, you have to try St. John's Ward, or I've heard people say, you've got to try this essential oil. Uh, are you exercising enough? I have a devotional book for you that you're going to love. Now just remember that God loves you, or just do the next thing. Put one foot out in front of the other. Just trust in the Lord. 
You just need a vacation. You just need some time off. Uh, There are all of these different sayings, oftentimes, that we have. We kind of just have them at the back of our mind, and we kind of just dispense them like they're verbal medication almost, as it were. But listen to what Ed says. He says, words can reach depressed people, but only words that are accompanied by love, understanding, and faith. In this, those who are depressed are similar to anyone else. That is, we rarely hear very well when someone talks to us without any real interest, love, or compassion. But when godly love is wrapped around words, people listen. Isn't it true that two people can say the exact same thing, yet the words of one may be empty and the other beautiful? The difference, of course, is that one person is a short-term, unaffected consultant, while the other loves the depressed person like a member of the family, right? You can say true things to a depressed person, right? Uh, You can say things that are true, might have truthfulness to them, but you can say them in a way that is completely devoid of love and compassion, right? And in some ways, oftentimes we can say certain things like what Welch has said, And we can say them out of impatience, right? We can say them because maybe this person's mood is affecting other things in the home, and we can say them in impatience, sort of, hey, just get it together, right? Can't you just get on board and be happy, right? Uh, We're going to the holidays, right, and to this meal with my family. Can't you just put on a happy face? And we can say things like that, more born out of impatience and frustration and irritation rather than biblical love. So when we're thinking about what to say, of course, what Scripture is going to command and encourage us is that what motivates all of our speech, what motivates everything that we say should be a love, not only for the other person, but ultimately a love for God, a love for other people that wants to see them flourish as God has designed them. Number three, ask good questions. Ask good questions, but don't overwhelm the person. I I tell people all the time, remember, this is a conversation, not an interrogation, right? Sometimes when we're moving towards someone who's struggling with depression and perhaps uh, maybe they've disclosed something to us, maybe they've said something like, man, I just, I've been feeling really down the past few weeks, or I just can't seem to get it together. I don't have any motivation. Uh, We immediately hop into an interrogation type mode, and we try to kind of locate the cause. We kind of put on our uh, Inspector Clouseau hat and try to uh, divine the cause of why a person is struggling, right? What I'd want to ask you this morning is just what makes for a good conversation? What makes for a good conversation, right? If you're just uh, spitting out questions to another individual and just waiting for responses, right? We, we realize that that doesn't have the flow or the feel of just a good conversation where a question can be asked and a response can be given, and then that response takes us down a certain path. I think part of the struggle for us too nowadays is oftentimes, uh, as you'll know, it can be hard for us to be in conversation, right? Our attention spans are a little bit lower. Uh, Certain conversations like this can feel uncomfortable for us, and so we can pull away. Uh, Sometimes if we don't get the answers that we perceive that we want, we can feel like we're being put off or that uh, we're not needed or that we're not wanted, and so we can give up or give in too easily. But think about what makes for a good conversation. One of the things that I'll ask people all the time is, why don't you remember the last time you felt loved and cared for in a conversation? Think about the last time that somebody expressed care and love for you. What do you remember about that conversation? What do you remember about their posture? What do you remember about their eye contact? What do you remember about their body language? What do you remember about the questions that they asked you, right? Uh, For a lot of people, unfortunately, they might say, man, I... I actually don't know how to answer that question. I actually don't remember a time in the past few weeks or month where I genuinely felt cared for. Uh, But some of you might. Some of you might have a conversation. Maybe it was a spouse. Maybe it was an elder here or a pastor or a small group leader who thoughtfully and carefully moved towards you. And begin to ask yourself, right, what was that like? What did that person do that made me feel loved and heard? And then seek to move towards other people uh, in that particular way. Zach Eswin writes this. He says, Many fellow sufferers have made a good life without ever knowing exactly why the darkness haunted them so. He says, When we do discover reasons why, we give thanks. But when reasons remain hidden, we learn to give thanks to and limp, leaning upon the cane. Either way, grace beyond our sight sees us clear, and it can bear well the weight that we cannot. 
right? What S-Wine, I think, is identifying there is, again, a lot of times in our conversation, there might not be anything that bubbles up to the surface as to, okay, this is why you're struggling or this is what you need to do, and that's okay. Sometimes the grace that comes to the person, the cane that they are able to lean on in times of difficulty is simply your presence, simply your desire to move towards a person in conversation. And so when we think about being a helper, when we think about being a caregiver, we want to draw near to people, we want to ask good questions, but we want to remember that we don't want to overwhelm a person with questions like an interrogator. And next, uh, don't, don't assume sin and don't go there first. Don't assume sin and don't go there first. Uh, in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, uh, John records for us, he says, As he passed by, Jesus saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him, right? John's uh, recording for us in this story, it's so helpful because uh, so many times, right, I think we're like Jesus's disciples, right? We kind of have this two-track mind, and so they see this man who's blind, and immediately the default is, okay, who sinned, right? And at least we have two possible causes. Either it was this guy who sinned, or it was uh, this guy's parents who sinned. Jesus, tell us, is, is this one or the other? Is it his parents or his sins? And, and Jesus says, well, listen, it, it's neither of those things. It's not this, and it's not this. It's this. It's the fact that the works of God might be displayed in him. Neither person's sin either the individual, the blind man himself, or his parents, Jesus is saying, that was directly responsible for the specific suffering that that man experienced. Spurgeon uh, says this about his own struggles. He said, I don't want people to have what he called ungenerous suspicions of the afflicted, the poor, and the despondent. Ungenerous suspicions. I think that's uh, such a, a thoughtful turn of phrase, right? That oftentimes when we see people who are struggling with depression, or let's not, not even confine it to depression, let's say any particular mental health struggle, right? Spurgeon says, don't move towards them with ungenerous suspicions, right? Immediately assuming the worst, right? Immediately assuming you have done something wrong. If, if you just made better choices, if you would just lose a little bit of weight, if you would just exercise a little bit more, if you had better control of your kids, right? If you, if you were coming to church on a more regular basis, if you were just going to complete that one-year Bible reading plan, if you just, and you fill in the blank, right? Our default a lot of times, right, is to move towards those ungenerous suspicions without that curiosity of asking thoughtful questions and listening with love and with intent. Next, uh, be careful not to take Scripture out of context. Be careful not to take Scripture out of context. We love Scripture. We want the words that come out of our mouth to be filled with the truths of Scripture. But a lot of times, we can mishandle Scripture. We can misuse Scripture. Not everybody in the, in the Bible uses Scripture and uses it in a good way. Satan quotes Bible verses back to Jesus, but he takes them out of context. He uses them in ways that they weren't designed a lot of times we all have favorite verses that we like to go to or that we point people to. Uh, I call them fast-forward verses. Fast-forward verses are verses that kind of really quickly fast-forward through people's pain and suffering just gets them to the end. You know, here's some of my favorites. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good and for those who are called according to His purpose. That is 100% true. That is a true statement. That is a good statement. But sometimes we can say a verse like that, or maybe we'll paraphrase it. Maybe we'll move it into our language. But what we do is we use it as a fast-forward verse. We use it to kind of broad brush that person's suffering, their difficulties and their hardships, and say, hey, I, I know you're struggling, but just wait. Don't worry. Here's what's happening at the end. Or a passage like 1 Corinthians 10.13 no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, right? And maybe the fast forward verse is we just, we flatten out their experience. We say, you know what? Everybody's struggling, right? You know, everybody's, everybody's struggling with motivation. Everybody's going through what you're going through. And what happens then is that person's experience and their struggle, right? It gets mitigated. It gets flattened out and the person doesn't feel heard. They don't feel loved or understood, Brad Hambrick writes this. He says, humility may require me to acknowledge that while their struggle is common to man, 
it is foreign to me. Humility may require me to acknowledge that while their struggle is common to man in the sense of, yes, underneath the sun, underneath the life that we live here in a fallen world, these struggles don't surprise God. They are common to humanity. That struggle, though, might be foreign to me. And I would say that sometimes there is a little bit of a disconnect there for caregivers who are helping people with depression because, again, we kind of compute it through our mind and we say, well, why is this so hard? You know, you get up, you brush your teeth, you get ready for work, you go to work. Yeah, I don't like doing those things, but I do it. And there can be a break in that understanding where that inability to empathize and understand the experience can lead us oftentimes towards certain passages of Scripture, these fast-forward verses where we can over-spiritualize or over-theologize what's going on. Next, as helpers, we want to stay in it for the long haul, but know that you can't do it alone. We want to stay in it for the long haul, but know that you can't do it alone. One of, the, one of the observations from the professional mental health community for people who are able to make long-term growth in the midst of their uh, mental health struggles is this. They say people who tend to have communities, they call them communities, uh, people who tend to have communities or social structures built in that can last long after therapy has ended tend to make better success, right? And they begin to describe what those communities look like. And they talk about uh, people who are going to be in regular interaction with other people, who are going to have common points of connection, where there's going to be organic moments where people can come and gather together and talk. And Uh, When they begin describing some of those things, I always think to myself, you know what they're describing? They're describing a church, right? They're describing a local body of believers who gather together on a regular basis and because of the gospel want to care well for those that are in their midst. And so when we think about in some ways what is and where is the ideal place for strugglers to grow? Where is the ideal place for people who are struggling with depression for them to find help and hope? And I think It is the local church. The local church in so many ways as God has designed it is not a perfect place, but it's a wonderful place for people to struggle. Why? Because there's an opportunity to help bear the burdens of other people, to care well for those around us. But a lot of times when we think about depression, again, because of how we tend to think about problems, we think about uh, hearing a problem, then fixing a problem, and then moving on, that we oftentimes forget that depression can be something that can last a long time. It can be something that maybe gets better for a certain period of time, and then people have setbacks. There's recidivism rates where people might experience some growth, and then there might be a period of time where there's some regression. And so what I try to tell caregivers is prepare for the long haul, and don't do it alone. Rope in another person, right? You're, you're not Christ. You can't do everything. You can't always be there. And you shouldn't promise to either, right? Sometimes we can overpromise and underdeliver on care, right? We might say things like, hey, whenever you need me, you just call me and, and I'll be there for you. And we say those things out of a good sentiment and motivation, but over the balance of a few months, maybe even moving into year, a year, we realize, man, I'm getting tired, right? I, I don't think that I can maintain this. And so what we realize is that when we're caring well for other people, one of the things that we have to acknowledge is that that care also impacts us, right? There's, I'm sure you guys have heard of things like compassion fatigue, right? Where when we're caring for other people and not also attending to our soul, it can take a toll on our own soul. It can take a toll even on our own mental health. And so when we think about caring for others, as early as is appropriate and as early as the, as the person who is in need of help, what would it look like to, to bring in another person, right? To say, hey, why don't, we, why don't we loop in Susie or Pam, these other ladies in our small group, so that you have other people, other people who are praying for you and supporting you during this time. That leads us then uh, ultimately then to this next point of ultimately we want to point to Jesus. We want to point to Jesus. We are not the end-all be-all. We are not the source of all wisdom. Uh, That is Christ himself. Jesus was a man of sorrows fully acquainted with grief. And one of the benefits, I think, for caregivers of being able to ultimately point to Jesus is because we don't always fully understand their experiences. We don't always fully understand the depth, the severity, uh, the difficulties that people are struggling with, and we need to be honest about that, right? They might say something to us, and uh, we realize that we don't have a frame of reference or a reference point for what that might be like or what that experience might be like. 
But what is remarkable, though, is that we can always encourage people to come to Christ and that Christ does understand, right? Christ does understand. He has lived the perfect human life, and He knows what it is like to suffer and to struggle. And so, again, as we said last night, it is a remarkable act of faith, then, for people who are struggling to simply come to Christ, right? For a struggler, for someone who is in the midst and in the mires and in just the quicksand of depression, something as simple as calling out to Christ, that is growth. That is a remarkable act of faith. And so when we are encouraging and caring for people in whatever ways we can, how are we pointing to Christ? How are we pointing to Him? Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, come to me, all who labor and are heavily laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Spurgeon writes this about Christ and about what Christ went through. He says, how completely it takes the bitterness out of grief to know that it once was suffered by Him. How completely it takes the bitterness out of grief to know that it once was suffered by Him. And so when we point to Christ, our merciful and our gracious high priest, we point them in the right direction, the one who can fully understand their experience. I also put down here, encourage them to seek counseling. And I I put maybe a little bit of a star here. Uh, Sometimes the encouragement to seek counseling can come more because we feel uncomfortable with the difficulty and the hardship of that person's problems. Uh, Sometimes we can recommend and encourage counseling because uh, we don't feel like we're equipped or we don't know what to say. Uh, Sometimes we can encourage them towards counseling because we find people to be burdensome and annoying, and we just feel like that's going to take up too much of my time. And uh, listen, I don't have enough time for my own family, and this just sounds like, oh, I'm getting myself into the deep end. Hey, why don't you just go talk to someone else? And that counseling can be, hey, go talk to a pastor or go talk to Pastor Andrew or Pastor Josh or whoever it might be. It's kind of like a, a handoff rather than a partnering. And so when I say encourage them to seek counseling, uh, hear me right, I'm not saying encourage them to seek counseling so that you can kind of, you know, wash your hands and say, okay, good, good, I'm I'm glad you got that help. No, the encouragement to seek counseling is simply to acknowledge that the level of complexity that a person might be struggling with exceeds your level of competency that the level of complexity of problem that a person might be struggling with exceeds your level of competency. So instead of a handoff, it's a partnering, right? What a beautiful thing it might be to say, hey, you know what? I, I feel like there are some things that are going on, some struggles that you're experiencing that, that frankly, I, I actually don't know. I don't know some of the answers. But how about you and I both together go and talk uh, to so-and-so, talk to our Bible study leader, talk to one of the pastors here at the church. W- would you be open to that? I would love that. I would love to come alongside you. I'd love to, I would love to learn with you, right? And again, maybe if that problem or that complexity of problem requires them to go to counseling, then perhaps you can be a part in some way, whether as an advocate or as a friend. But when we're encouraging people to seek counseling, it's not a handoff. It's not a way to say, okay, good, we're done. But it's a way to simply acknowledge you don't have all the answers and that at different times, because of the different kinds of struggles that people might be facing in depression, you might need an extra set of hands. You might need an extra set of ears. You might need an extra set of eyes on that individual. Finally, and I think this is so important for us, uh, don't make depression the primary way you see them. Uh, Depression is something that we struggle with. It's not an all-encompassing identity. And sometimes what we can do is we can attach a diagnostic description onto a person and we can simply and purely see them through that lens. Zach Eswine writes this, he says, diagnostic words like depression then are invitations, not destinations. They're invitations, not destinations, right? They're an invitation, like we tried to set up in our first session, they're an invitation for understanding. Okay, you're, you're using this word, I am depressed. Uh, I, I know something about depression, but would you help me? Help me understand a little bit more what you're going through, right? Depression's not a way now that, you know, when we see Bobby coming through or we see Stan coming through, oh, yeah, there's, there's Stan, he's the depressed one. No, that's, that's going to move us away from relationship. That's going to move them away from the primary way that God sees them and then that we should see them. Ed Welch writes this, he says, one of the problems with the word depression is that it can come to define people. 
Instead of being a simple summary of a difficult and complex experience, depression transforms into a diagnosis. And even more than that, it can become an identity both to depress people themselves and to their friends. And so again, what I try to do when I'm coming alongside people who are struggling with depression is to make sure and to realize that in conversations and interactions and invitations with them, that that's not the primary way I see them. Uh, all roads don't lead back to Rome, and therefore in conversation, all roads don't have to lead back to depression. Uh, a lot of times people might not want to talk about some of those things, and that's okay. Uh, what would be something that you would like to talk about? Are there, is there something that I can invite you to do or to come alongside that we can experience together? Right? Sometimes when we think about depression and make it their fundamental identity, we actually might be losing valuable opportunities for connection and conversation because we feel like, at least in our minds, well, because they're depressed, they might not want to talk about this. Or because they're depressed, they might not want to go to this game with me or go to this event or come to this study. And so if we take depression and we simply put it in a category of, okay, this is one thing that this person is struggling with, but that doesn't mean this is the totality of who they are, we oftentimes, I think, find greater opportunities for deeper and more enriching friendships and relationships. Well, let's make a little bit of a pivot, and then the time that we have left, uh, talk to the struggler, right? And again, like we said last night, in a room this large with as many people, uh, I would be naive to think that there are not many of you here tonight who have struggled with either the clinical diagnosis of depression or the, the more garden variety of just, man, I, I, I've had periods of despair, I've had periods of feeling low. And if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you with some things that I think, again, not boxes to be checked, but habits that you can begin to practice. Uh, here's the first one. Uh, talk to yourself. Don't just listen to yourself. Talk to yourself. Don't just listen to yourself. And again, here's where Lloyd-Jones, who wrote a book called Spiritual Depression, is helpful. He says, in other words, we must talk to ourselves instead of allowing ourselves to talk to us. We must take ourselves in hand, and we must address ourselves as the psalmist addressed himself in his soul and asked the question, why are you cast down? Why are you disquieted within me? You have no right to be like this. Why are you depressed and cast down? He faces himself, and he talks to himself. He argues with himself and brings himself back to the position of faith. Uh, Paul Tripp oftentimes says, he says, listen, you are the most influential person in your life because nobody talks to you more than you talk to yourself, right? You are the most influential person. And I find that incredibly to be true. A lot of times in depression, the things that we are listening to are thought patterns, beliefs that ultimately are not rooted in truth. And we'll talk about that a little bit later about depression's lies. And so what Lloyd-Jones is exhorting us to do in his book, Spiritual Depression, is sometimes you need to take your soul to task. You need to talk out loud to yourself, right? When we read through Psalm 42 together last night, right, the psalmist essentially does that. He's talking to himself. He's saying, why are you so downcast, oh my soul? Right? It's a, it's a question. It's an invitation as he asked this question before the Lord for the Lord to minister comfort and grace to him. In Psalm 42.5, when the psalmist says, why are you cast down on my soul? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. I think that that last phrase is so important. We talk a lot about hope in the midst of depression, and I think that there's a major misconception about hope, especially as it relates to depression. Most of the time when I talk to people about hope and depression, we tend to equate hope with a feeling. We tend to equate, okay, uh, feelings of optimism, feelings of goodwill or joy. And so when we talk about being hopeful to someone who's struggling with depression, it feels very dissonant, right? You're saying, hey, you, you need to be hopeful. Look at all that the Lord has provided for you. Look at where you're headed. But what happens are those feelings don't immediately change, and so therefore we feel hopeless. But friends, hope is not just naive optimism. Hope is not just a feeling. As we see here in Psalm 42, hope is something that we have to actively practice. Hope is a virtue that we must practice. Hope isn't just something that happens to us, right? The psalmist says, hope in God. That's an action word. That is something that the psalmist is willing and telling himself to do in the moment. He's calling his soul in the depths of depression, hope in God right? He's calling his soul to say, hope in God, the one true source of hope. And so, as people who struggle with depression, right, what are the different ways then that we can turn off that inner narrative or at least 
I'll tell people, how can we turn the volume down on some of those internal narratives that we're listening to? And how can we turn the volume up on what God says about us, what God has given to us through His Word and through His people and through His Spirit? That takes us into our next one, uh, identifying depression's lies. A lot of times people who are struggling with depression develop internal narratives that, again, because of that odd filter that depression is, uh, we have a thought that comes to our mind and we just, we turn it over. Uh, we continue to turn it over in our mind and those narratives become beliefs and those beliefs begin to shape how we view ourselves and how we view other people. So some of those lies of depression, right? And for those who have struggled this morning, you'll probably resonate with some of these things because you'll say, yes, I've, I've told myself that. I have believed that. Things like, it's always going to be like this. This is just the way things are. No one cares about you. You're such a burden to other people. Uh, I had somebody tell me that the other day in counseling. They said, listen, I, I don't want to overwhelm you. Everywhere I go, I know people just feel like I'm a lot. I'm a lot to handle. Uh, don't tell anyone. You're the only one who struggles like this. Uh, you must have done something wrong. Something is wrong with you. Uh, strong, successful people, and I'd maybe put, you know, a comma there, like strong, successful, strong, godly people don't battle depression. My family's better off without me. My friends are better off without me. I'm just a downer. I bring people down. And when we think about depression's lies, what we realize is that it's going to take some work to combat those lies, right? It's not enough to uh, hear one of those lies and the lie is, hey, you're the only one who struggles like this. And maybe from a sermon or from a conference like this, uh, I might say something like, well, no, you're not alone. You're not the only one who struggles. And then you can think about that for a moment and then walk out of here. But what happens to that lie again? That lie is sticky. It comes back. It's subversive. And so what do we have to do, right? A part of identifying depression's lies is we have to begin retelling truth to ourselves. We have to begin putting on repeat the truthfulness of what God has said to us to combat those lies. Why, why, do, you think, why do you think, especially the Psalms, why do you think the Psalms are so repetitive? Right? Why, why is the most often repeated characteristic of, of God in the Psalms the fact that his steadfast love endures forever? Why, you know, God doesn't need to repeat himself. Just put it down one time and, you know, we got it. Well, I think one of the reasons why repetition is so built into the Psalms is because God realizes that there are certain things about himself that is revealed to us that he just needs to keep telling us, Right? It's that slow, steady drip of the, the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance, the kindness of the Lord that moves us out of depression, where on a daily and a consistent basis to combat those lies, maybe there's one line that we just continue to tell ourselves. The Lord is a help to those in times of trouble. Uh, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever, right? When we combat uh, uh, the lies of depression, we need to combat them with the truth of Scripture in our hearts. And number three, find a metaphor in Scripture that speaks to you. I find oftentimes for people who are struggling with depression, propositional truth, and what I mean by that is uh, propositional truth, truth that, comes to con that kind of comes to us in more of a declarative way, uh, oftentimes doesn't really move the needle, right? Doesn't really move our hearts so we can uh, say something true about the Lord Christ died for sinners. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, right? We can know a gospel truth, but those things are good. But one of the things that I found in my experience with other people who are struggling is that there's metaphors in Scripture about who God is that actually begin to really excite and animate my imagination and my affections for the Lord. If you have your Bible, turn over with me to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32 is one of my favorites. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses is talking to the children of Israel, and they're in a wilderness. And those of you who are at uh, Canyon, uh, from what I understand, you guys are studying Hosea, which a lot of Hosea is about the wilderness and about God taking people to the wilderness. Just so we're all on the same page, right? In the Old Testament in particular, the wilderness is both a spot, but it's also this, this metaphorical place. It is a place where you do not want to go, right? In the wilderness is, is death. There's no life. There's no water. It's also a spot and it's a place in the Old Testament where more often than not, the children of Israel found themselves in, but in finding themselves there, the Lord drew near to them and cared for them. Listen to how God describes himself to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 32. Moses records, he found him, talking about the children of Israel, in a desert land. 
and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, and he cared for him, and he kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him, and no foreign God was with him. On some days, I, I read that passage, and I just want to cry because it is so moving, right? That phrase of God found him in the desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. If you've talked to anybody who struggled with depression, that sense of just wilderness, the howling waste of the wilderness is it's immediately going to capture a part of their fundamental experience. And what are we told about how God draws near to us? Well, he, he comes with, with crossed, folded arms, and he repeats back to us scripture verses and theology and truths about himself that we need to drill into our head. No. He encircles us. He cares for us. He keeps us as the apple of his eye. Now, we all know that phrase, right? Keeping us as the apple of his eye. And uh, we oftentimes talk about our children, right? Our children are the apple of our eye. And what that, what that idiom suggests is that, that, that people are so close to us. Our children are so close to us that they are the apple of our eye. We see them and they are with us. Our children are on our hearts, right? What a beautiful, moving metaphor then that, that God himself draws near to us. And he says, you know what? You are the apple of my eye. You are on my heart. Wherever I go, wherever I am at, I am with you, right? For a lot of people who struggle with depression, this is the exact opposite of how they feel. They do not feel cared by God. They do not feel close to God. So for God to come and to say, no, 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 I know this is how you feel. I know this is what you're experiencing, but friend, you are the apple of my eye. Moses goes on, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, and bearing them on its pinions. And, and again, if you have studied Scripture, you'll know that there's, there's wonderful threads of this idea of God hovering over us as this mothering hen or this bird, uh, whether it's in Ruth, whether it's in Psalm 91, whether it's in Matthew's gospel as Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. But many of you guys have probably seen different stories when forest fires or when large-scale fires break out that one of the things that researchers and observers have noticed, especially when uh, livestock and other animals are, are found in various spots that uh, have been hurt or have ultimately been killed by those fires, that one of the things in particular that hens or chickens or other birds will do is that in order to protect their young, they will, they will spread out their wings and their pinions and they will just hold really tight and cover their, their younglings, their eggs, their, their young chicks. And there have been numerous stories found where uh, firefighters or policemen or, or forest rangers will find a mothering bird who has deceased, but underneath her are her young that she's protected, right? God says to us, here's, here's how I love you. Here's how I move towards you. I'm not a distant God. I'm not a God who is far away and removed and indifferent. I am a God who comes over you and covers you. I am a God who ultimately in Christ, I am willing to give myself for you, right? It's a, it's a beautiful metaphor, right? Sometimes, right, there are images and pictures that need to stir our hearts, right? We all know true things about God, right? I'm assuming in a church or a, a group this size, you are well taught, you, you understand truths about God, but, but sometimes a metaphor of who God is, it, it tips us over the edge. It moves us to really drawing near to the Lord. Probably one of the more famous ones in Psalm 23, right? In Psalm 23, the Lord is our shepherd. And in verse 4, it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I heard one commentator talking about Psalm 23, and they made a fascinating observation. They said, I think a lot of times when we read Psalm 23, we, we tend to think of the valley of the shadow of death as just, you know, maybe like a, an episode here and there in our life, right? Like, oh, God's going to get us through the valley, and then eventually we'll go somewhere else. And the commentator simply observed, he said, man, isn't really all of life here on a fallen world until Christ returns? Aren't we living in the valley of the shadow of death? Aren't we living in this in-between this in -between time, this already but not yet? And so when we understand that life more often than not, the reality is, no, we're in the valley of the shadow of death. And how does God move towards us? Well, he moves towards us as a shepherd. 
He moves towards us as a shepherd who cares for us, who comforts us, right, with his rod and with his staff. Think about Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, 1 through 2 is another one of my favorites. I'll, I'll paraphrase or at least I'll, I'll, I'll shorten the first one to move into verse 2. But Isaiah says this about Christ. He says, there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish, speaking of the children of Israel. He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Right? I even love, the, love the, the promotional material for the conference about hope in the midst of darkness. Depression feels very dark, right? There's something about God coming to us in Christ. I am the light of the world, right? What does, what does light do, right? What does light do to darkness? It expels it, it dispels it. Uh, Pallison, uh, David Pallison would oftentimes talk about the power of a three-watt nightlight. He said, imagine you're in a room that is completely dark, a, a room where you can't even see your hand in front of your face. He says, something even as small and as flickering as a three-watt nightlight, even something like that can bring light to darkness, can dispel difficulty, right? When we think about how the Lord comes to us, right, a metaphor like this is incredibly helpful. Right? What does it look like for the Lord to shine light into our lives in the midst of darkness? Maybe it's something as practical as, you know what, I'm pulling back the drapes. I'm pulling back the curtains. I'm getting outside. I'm looking at the sun. I'm watching the sun rise. I'm watching the sunset to remind me and to draw my affections to the Lord who shines light on me. Those metaphors in Scripture, when we really dig into them, I think begin to move us towards the Lord in ways that are truly meaningful. Just for sake of time, we'll run through uh, these last few. Consider listening to rich, gospel-saturated music. Uh, I'm so thankful that we're able to worship together before the sessions in music. I think music is a vastly underrated treatment for depression, right? In the Old Testament especially, not everybody could read. And the way that you would commit truth to yourself, the way that you would remind yourself truths about God was you would sing them to yourself, right? The Psalms are a hymn book, really, in so many ways, of the children of Israel singing out loud to God things that they know to be true about God, right? In our day and age, again, most of us here are literate and can read, but for a lot of the people in the time of Scripture, the way that you would understand and, and hold Scripture in your heart was by memorizing it, receiving it orally, or singing it to yourself. So it makes sense then when Paul says in Colossians 3.15, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Well, what is one of the ways that we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly? He says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And then what's the very next thing that he says? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, right? A lot of times, again, because the different things that we're listening to are only reinforcing depression's lies to us, what are ways then through unexpected means, things through what we listen to on the radio or in music, that we can have gospel truths reinforced to us, right? Finding good gospel-saturated music, old hymns or, or music that, that I'm sure are songs that we have sung not only here this morning, but that you sing with your church family on a Sunday. How can you have that on repeat? How can you have that reinforcing the truth of the gospel? Uh, rightly prioritize feelings and emotions. We'll talk a lot about feelings and emotions in a bit, but feelings and emotions are definitely dynamics that impact us and affect us. And one of the things that can happen in depression is that we put our feelings in the driver's seat, right? We put our feelings in the driver's seat so we begin to orient to the world simply based on how we feel. Now, emotions are not a bad thing. I'm a big fan of emotions. I think it's a way that God created and designed us, but emotions are great passengers, but bad drivers in our life typically, right? They're, they make for great passengers. They add life and vitality to our life, but when we begin to solely act on our emotions, uh, oftentimes I think we, we make a couple of detours and we can get ourselves into a wrong spot. Bob Coughlin, uh, who was with Sovereign Grace Music and has uh, openly talked about his struggle with depression, uh, writes this about the role that uh, thinking about his feelings uh, has, has uh, been of impact for him. He says, the Psalms teach us that our relationship with God involves our emotions. God's presence brings joy. God's promises bring comfort. God's provision brings satisfaction. But I was trying to root my faith in my experiences rather than in God's word. 
And so, again, a lot of times what feelings can do is they can overwhelm us, they can dysregulate us to where we don't go to the true source of hope and comfort, uh, which is God in Christ. Uh, Finally, uh, explore non-medical interventions. Uh, Explore non-medical interventions. Last night we talked a lot about medication, both the pros and cons of it. But before you get to that step, there are many things uh, that you can do as an individual who is struggling uh, to mitigate some of those experiences and struggles uh, with depression. Uh, Things like diet, sleep, and exercise. Uh, It has been proven in study after study that addressing diet, addressing sleep, and exercise significantly can positively, significantly and positively affect people who are struggling with depression. Examine your living or your work environment, right? In a, in a time and an era where a lot of us are doing more work from home, right? So you get up in your PJs, put on a button-up shirt, go into the bedroom next to you, sit at a computer all day. That's undoubtedly going to affect you. So there are different things that you can address in your living or in your work environment. Uh, evaluate your, your usage of social media and technology. Uh, I have never read or seen of a study that says social media and technology, utilizing them in, in high amounts, positively impacts people's mental health. Never seen it. If anything, every study that I read, both for children, teens, and adults, is that social media and technology, prolonged engagements with it, significantly decrease our mental health. So examine that. Do a little bit of an audit of your technology and your media consumption. Uh, something else that, that uh, doesn't oftentimes get mentioned but that is becoming more of a frequent uh, treatment for things like depression and anxiety and other things is caring for plants and animals. Caring for plants and animals. If uh, you have pets or you enjoy being outside and gardening, uh, what people have identified is there's something about caring for something outside of yourself, kind of getting you outside of yourself, whether it's caring for a dog or a cat or uh, a beloved pet or caring for a plant or tending to it, that begins to help you see a wider gaze, right? Begins to help you see, hey, there's more to what's going on than just my experience. And so uh, actually in a lot of uh, different um, inpatient addiction centers, one of the very first things that they'll teach addicts is how to care for plants and how to care for an animal. And uh, that's begin to translate then into other things. So I hope that as we have read through all of these things and gone through all of these things, what I want you to see is that whether you're on the side of being a helper and a caregiver, or whether you're on the side of receiving help and finding some of these things to be helped in, uh, that you'll realize that all of these things, again, are not boxes to be checked. They're practices, to ha- uh, practices uh, habits rather to practice. And these things are things that we must do uh, with the power of the Spirit and with the wisdom uh, of the Lord. So let me pray for us briefly, and then uh, we'll have a break and we'll come back together. Uh, Lord, we come to you and we, we cry out to you. You are our helper. You are our helper in times of struggle and hardship. You are our fortress, our rock. You are our salvation, our shepherd. You are our shield. You buttress us. Lord, there are so many good things that we can say about you, ways that you bless us and encourage us and sustain us, that you lift up our heads. And so, Lord, this morning, I pray that in whatever way possible, you would uh, recall the mind. And, and all of my brothers and sisters who are assembled here this morning, Lord, would you recall and bring to mind those truths, uh, those realities about who you are to our mind and to our hearts, and that uh, the reality and the truthfulness of who you are would bring great comfort and healing to us. And uh, we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.